G'day, everyone. Welcome to Lubrication Experts. Today, I have uh, an episode that I've been wanting to do for a while, but wanted to do it the right way and with the right guest. So um, today, I've got Adam Banks from Afton Chemical, and he looks after marketing for uh, EV fluids at, at Afton. So it makes him the, the perfect person really to talk to. You might sort of wonder, um, what does a marketing specialists do when the market almost doesn't exist at this stage. I'm sure Adam will be able to talk through uh, through that, um, but sort of makes him perfectly placed to be able to discuss, you know, some of the future trends as well as current trends that we're seeing in the EV space and really how does that affect both um, lubricants uh, in the EV space um, and that extends, you know, from passenger to commercial vehicles as well. Um, a little bit of an We'll talk a little bit about the, the challenges of, of formulation, but also the formulation process as well, because this is basically an, an entirely new product category that is being developed. And I think there's, you know, that doesn't really happen all that often. And so when we have these uh, shifts or almost like a paradigm shift in technology, uh, I think it makes it really interesting and there's a lot of innovation that goes along. So um, Adam, thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks, Ruth. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, happy to talk about it. Cool. Um, so just to maybe uh, level set for everyone, because we've got a bit of a global audience here. Um, not a huge audience, but it, it's sort of scattered all over the world. And I'd just like to get an understanding from, from where you guys are in Afton. How do you see uh, the development of EV? So for example, I know that they're making, you know, getting a bit of traction in Europe and you, you hear a lot about the Americas and obviously you know, I'm not deeply embedded in marketing China, but my understanding is that it's very active over there. But here in Australia, there's not that many EVs on the road. And I think partially that's, you know, we're a relatively small market, you know, right-hand drive as well. Um, so we tend to get a lot of the car models much later than the rest of the world. Um, but uh, how do you guys see it playing out? Is this a, is this a global phenomenon yet? Is it, is it just regional? What's, what's your take on it? Yep. So I, it's very different uh, in different places in the world. And um, one thing I think is interesting with the pandemic is people haven't been traveling. So you sort of see what your slice of the world looks like and we haven't had a chance to go and look at that in other places the last two, three years. Really, and that's been quite a lot of change in that time. Um, that, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm in a right-hand drive market as well. It's, uh, yeah, you guys, us, what, Japan and Kenya, that's, yeah, a few others. <laughs> um, but still, uh, we're getting, if, if I look at the roads here, uh, I see EVs every day. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I don't live in London, I live in Southern England, but, um, it's, I still see that on my daily commute. Um, the Teslas, the, the VW IDs are quite distinctive in terms of their looks, uh, Kias and so on. Um, so it's definitely coming in and it's, it's a visible kind of thing, but very much depends where you are. Um, so I did look up a few stats for you. I saw, um, apparently 2021, Australia was 2.1% of sales were plug-in. So it's plug-in hybrid and battery electric, um, which is three times higher than 2020 was. So you've got, you know, growth there coming in quite quickly. Um, the UK, meanwhile, plug-in sales are about 20%. Um, so you'd see, you know, one in five cars on the road that's new is going to be a uh, plug-in in some sort. And there's some of those electric vehicles shout about themselves a bit louder than others. Um, so it's a, it's a visible part of the road. Um, but it does very much depend where in the world you are. Um, so, uh, Japan. They've not really gone down that route, it's much more hybrid. So their, their EV rate is about 1%. So really quite low. Um, whereas somewhere, um, like, uh, the U S is, is quite a bit higher. Um, although much of that 
is in California, something like uh, two-fifths of their sales are in California. So again, depending on where you are in the US, it's going to uh, feel very different and your day-to-day ex- experience of it and how quickly you see this coming towards you um, is going to vary. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It's it's funny that you just mentioned that uh, some of them are pretty distinctive. It, um, it feels like uh, a lot of the manufacturers have taken the opportunity, you know, with a shift to EV, some of them have taken the opportunity to sort of like rebrand. So if you look at like Hyundai's cars, for example, uh, their, their, you know, Ionic electric vehicle line looks remarkably yeah. different to, uh, to the rest of their, their vehicles. I, I heard someone say that they, they've had a really, uh, uh, an amazing glow up you know, in the last couple of years. And, uh, yeah, it's just interesting to see like the different takes, whereas, you know, someone like, uh, Ford is, you know, basically replicating their, their ice model with, you know, like the F-150 and the F-150 lining. Um, okay. So that, that, that kind of helps us level set that it's a little bit regional, but, but obviously, you know, growing pretty, pretty rapidly, even if it's off a relatively small base. Um, one of the things that I find kind of interesting about the, the EV world at the moment, um, we can specifically talk passenger cars first and then maybe then move on to commercial, but it's just the, the plethora of different platforms that are out there. So, you know, on the face of it, everyone seems to have kind of landed on that sort of skateboard design, I guess, where, you know, you've got a low slung battery that's sometimes, you know, part of the structure. Um, and then obviously you've got various motor configurations anywhere between one and four, right? But then beyond that, um, and specific to the lubricants, uh, things don't seem to be baked. So my understanding, for example, that the Nissan Leaf, I don't know about the second gen one, but the first one was, was just purely air cooled as far as the battery goes. And then we had, you know, you sort of move on to the Teslas, which are more traditionally like water glycol cooled. Um, and then the Porsche Taycan was sort of the first one that really tried to do that huge integration where it was single fluid kind of, you know, moving, uh, heat around, um, maybe where, where do you see, do you see it going? Do you, do you see that fractionation for want of a better word, uh, being permanent or do you think that everyone is eventually going to land on a, on a most efficient platform? Yeah. Uh, interesting question. I, I mean, certainly that trend between, um, direct cooled e-motors, um, or from going from dry to wet, um, I think is, is significant in the industry. Um, and a lot of the first generation ones were, uh, dry, like the Nissan Leaf, where there's no direct lubricant on the electric motor. Um, but there's quite a significant number now, which are moving to, uh, direct cool. So the Teslas, I think are direct cool, uh, use the same oil in the gearboxes to cool the electric motor. Um, and, uh, that's increasingly the trend that we see. Um, we did some work, uh, modeling that with Ricardo, um, and from the models that they took and, and the particular, um, examples they had, if you took a, a conventional vehicle, which is dry system versus wet, and you'd see somewhere between one and 3% efficiency gain, um, over, a, you know, in, in its drive cycle. And, and if you relate that back then to range in the battery or cost of the vehicle, given that's where the battery cost or the, where the cost of the vehicle comes from with the battery, that's really significant for, uh, the OEMs trying to make those sales and to, to make money doing so. So, um, I think that means that, um, we'll definitely see a shift towards, um, wet e-motors and that's pretty much across the board, even for the smaller vehicles where maybe there's less of a gain, 
Um, but I think that'll come in. Um, and, and indeed the work that we're doing with the manufacturers bears that out that in many of the cases, their first generations might've been, um, a dry design and in terms of the lubricant, then, um, using a, a relatively simple gear oil, um, tailored for the job, but you know, relatively traditional, um, and now moving towards something that's designed for it an integrated system. Um, so that's when we're looking at the transmission and the, uh, the e-motor part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we could talk a little bit about some of the, the challenges that are involved there, right? Because, um, probably the obvious uh, question that people would be asking is like, hold up, we've been, we've been lubricating electric motors for an awfully long time. You know, what is unique about, uh, the EV application? And obviously the fact that it's the, uh, the transmission coupled with the electric motor, mostly in sharing a common lube oil system, um, you know, my, my basic understanding of it is that is a little bit challenging because a lot of the additives that we have typically used to protect gears, you start to think of your sort of anti-wear and EP style additives are incompatible with the, the basically the couple windings, uh, in the electric motor. Um, is that more or less the crux of it or does it kind of balloon beyond that? No, no, that, that's right. I mean, there are some new properties as well that we're thinking about, but if, if I take this back one step to the start of that question, uh, so I, I got my start in this industry, um, looking at, uh, tractor lubricants, off-road stuff, and there you've got a common sump that does everything, you know, so it'll go into, uh, the hydraulics and the transmission and, uh, the wet brakes and everything else. Um, and that the, sort of the learning that comes out of that is formulating for one thing is easy. You know, or relatively, I'll, I'll do my hydraulic formulators a disservice here. <laughs> um, yeah, formulating for one system is easy. Um, it's when you've got more than one system combined together in one sum that you start to have to make trade-offs and decisions about uh, what you need to do. Um, so let's put that in the context of EV. The second part of what you said there is exactly right. It's, um, if you had just cooling the electric motor, um, okay, there are some decisions you've got to make there and you can optimize for it, but that's relatively straightforward. If you had just the gears to protect, that's relatively straightforward, but it's when you combine them together, um, that you start to have to make decisions and compromises. Um, and so like almost anything else formulating an additive where it drives the technology, it is about balance and, um, balancing those performances. So, um, you're absolutely right that in terms of the components that we've used traditionally to protect gears, uh, they can be, uh, more aggressive to some of the materials. Um, unless you carefully formulate or find alternative strategies for it. Um, but there are new considerations like, um, uh, that we haven't had to consider before in transmission fluids, uh, like electrical conductivity, which is mm -hmm. not something we've had to measure. Now, transformer fluids and other things, yes, there's, there's learning that you could take from that and, and apply, but it's, it's not being a consideration in that area. Um, and so some of the components that you might have used just might be higher in um, conductivity. And so you've got to formulate in the right way. Um, the other one is, uh, around heat. So that's the other key challenge with this, that, um, the electric motor can be much hotter. So uh, as a spot temperature and also just a, in terms of the thermal load through the system. Um, and so, um, cooling and, and having an active part of that system, uh, but then also managing to survive that environment as well, are, are things that the, the lubricant now needs to do. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay. That's probably not something that I'd really thought of before. And, and the, probably the other component as well is that people started talking about the battery cooling fluid side 
of things as well, um, whether that's a separate or, or integrated system. Can you speak a little bit to some of the developments there? Yeah, so that's relatively earlier. Um, almost all the examples today are um, water glycol cools the batteries. Um, but the idea is that if you can, um, instead of having, uh, so let me describe it. So the, the water glycol is conductive. So you can't put that directly onto uh, the battery cells. Um, usually it'll come down via a bus bar and then um, they'll cool that. Um, so it's the modules within the battery uh, that, that get cooled. So the idea of a direct coolant is that you apply that all the way around the cells and so the whole thing gets cooled and, and that's evenly and there's less of a temperature gradient. So that helps with the performance and the longevity. Um, but you do need a dielectric fluid to do that. Um, and so that, that's the concept. Um, with that, you should get better performance out of it really quite significantly. Um, and whether that's then used to improve the lifetime or gain efficiency, um, or probably the only working example I'm aware of is the McLaren Speedtail. Um, not exactly a mass production car, uh, <laughs> but the purpose of that, far as I'm aware, was just to dump out the power as quick as it could to get to the wheels. Um, so it's, it's direct cool for that performance reason. Um, okay. so we can share yeah, advice thanks. for the common man here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's, it's something that people are looking at, um, and it, it will help with things like charge times, which I think is probably the, the more important application for everyday use, you know, rather than extreme performance. Yeah. Um, and that, that's where you'll see that, that improvement. Is that the reason why that's not common because of cost complexity uh it's just not required yet because uh you know charging architecture isn't isn't there yet what's what's kind of the reason we're not seeing that being that all that widespread i think it's just time and technology you know it, it's just an earlier technology so it's in development um but it's not quite there yet so yeah. we'll see that come along um i mean the other thing it can help with potentially is um fire prevention as well which um it has been something which uh, of course, very important to people that, um, that you, you're not going to get, um, hurt by, by an EV if there's a fire, you know, you've got time to escape, um, cause they're, they're particularly notoriously difficult to put out once they get going. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. And, and I know everyone's kind of familiarity with, uh, with EVs is primarily, you know, passenger vehicles, and uh, that's sort of you know, really where it's gotten its start, but obviously eventually, uh, this technology is going to be at least tried in the commercial space, uh, and you know, presumably it'll, it'll take off in the same way. Um, uh, is there any specific work that's being done around the commercial space that's any different or is it just scaling up all the technology that's been used in passenger vehicles? Yeah, there's definitely a relation. Um, it, it's happening uh, a bit later, you know, we're, we're not seeing a lot of, um, electric trucks on the road, uh, yeah, you know, heavy trucks. Um, but the manufacturers are pushing towards it. And there are some, um, significant dates for emissions legislation, which will require them to leave. Um, so the, the two bigger bits that will make them move are in California and Europe, um, where for Europe, there's a, there's two big jumps in, in the emissions steps. That's so a one in 2025 and one in 2030 for the 2025 one. Um, the forecasts are that they'll need to do quite a lot. So not just optimizing as they have done for a long time, but start to introduce, um, some quite significant changes like that could be things like intelligent 
um, uh, fleet controls, platooning, that sort of thing. But I, I'm not sure that'll be ready by that kind of time. Um, so then it's introducing some degree of electrification within their fleet. Um, now that could be, they have quite a number of hybrids, or it could be, they have a few electric vehicles to, you know, get that corporate average uh, higher. Um, the California legislation, meanwhile, is going to be zero emission across the whole lot. And that's 2030. Um, and the European date when you really need to get to a lot of electric is 2030. So that's the kind of time horizon the OEMs are working on. And if you work back from that and think about, well, how long does it take to validate a vehicle? How long does it take to design it? Um, and to be ready to go mass market, not just my first prototype where I'm working out the kinks and you know, working with a few fleets and so on. So they're, they're having to work at it pretty hard. And that's, that's kind of now when the technology is being put in. Um, so yeah, definitely the commercial vehicle OEMs are, are looking at this and uh, designing systems for it. The feedback we've had so far, though, is that um, in terms of the lubrication systems, um, there's probably greater difference between individual OEMs than there is between passenger car and commercial vehicle. Um, you know, so there is a certain degree of overlap in terms of what we can learn. Uh, I, I guess the engineers, the automotive engineers, and also you know, as the lubricant uh, to provide that. Um, and many of the technologies are similar. Uh, some of those layouts, you know, the sort of skateboard design is, is similar, but um, there are more options with commercial vehicles in terms of the way that you lay it out, um, the way that you might integrate it with your current vehicle design, um, or start with kind of blank sheet and, and optimize it. So, um, yeah, lots of different ways of doing it, and that then produces different needs depending on on the, how you implement electrification within a CV. That's really interesting because I mean, the, the passenger vehicle market is sort of the one that grabs all the headlines. Um, but it, it is interesting to know that, uh, I guess the commercial vehicle space is on such a strict, uh, schedule for want of a better word. Uh, and that, uh, is, is going to drive a, a lot of R and D and, and 2025, you know, that's really not very far away <laughs> for some pretty bad changes to occur. And, and when you're not hearing much in, in sort of the commercial vehicle space, um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot of work. Um, and I mean, we're seeing, you know, a lot of the, the truck makers are coming out with, uh, initial designs and uh, initial vehicles they're putting on the road. So they are getting experience with first generation ones now. Um, but if you take a look at some of the announcements of, uh, the likes of Volvo or Scania, um, they've got some fairly aggressive targets to hit. So, um, yeah, I think you'll start to see it move. And, um, while the legislative environment isn't quite the same, uh, there's, there's a push in China as well, where the big truck makers are there. And so they're, they're moving in that direction. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, just in in my head, I sort of play out how the the passenger vehicle market has grown, but it was a very, very, very small part of the the market for a very long time, right? And and it sort of it started to snowball now because it's it's that sort of exponential growth. But um, you know, it's it's in a very short space of time. I guess we're going to see uh, a lot of announcements very very quickly. Now, just maybe one thing because you you'll understand the regulation a little bit uh, better. Uh, than I do certainly. Most of the regulations that you're talking about, specifically to California as well as the the EU, um, I've sort of heard uh, zero um, emissions and banning of ICE vehicles. Those terms kind of used interchangeably. Um, for example, you know uh, some of the Japanese manufacturers are working on hydrogen combustion engines. Does that count as zero emissions, or does that fall under the ban as well? Yeah, um, 
that's one I don't think has been thought about enough with the, the legislative frameworks. Um, you know, and and if, it depends also what the emissions are, are described as. Mm. Um, so if it's hydrogen combustion as opposed to fuel cell, then um, you're still going to get some degree of um, you know, other particulates and so on. Um, but it's minor. I think under most that that would qualify. Um, things like um, synthetic fuels is an interesting one. Mm. Um, now, I think the economics of that mean that's not going to come in um, in a mass market anytime soon. Um, but if that has a, a zero um, carbon footprint, effectively, because you you take the carbon from the air, you create it, create the fuel, and then you know it's got a, a zero footprint on on combustion. Um, does that qualify? That's one thing where uh, a number of uh, interests in Germany have been pushing for that to be included in the um, recent EU legislation that that can be uh, provided you fully account for that. That yeah. can be part of uh, lower emissions. So, I mean, the sensible thing to do is to have things, yeah. have your outcome as the goal um, and be technology uh, agnostic. Yeah. Um, in many cases, legislation doesn't do that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, you know, I'm just thinking as a as an F1 fan. I mean, that was one of the big uh, demands that I guess the Volkswagen Group had for the entry of uh, Audi and Porsche. Which, you know, based on recent news, it looks like Porsche may not may not end up in F1 after all that. But 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 certainly Audi's ent- entrance seems to be predicated on the use of the the synthetic fuels. So we'll, we'll have to see where that happens. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'd, I'd like to understand a little bit more is the maybe the development cycle for, for EV fluids. So I think maybe the industry has been not trapped, but but has been in a bit of a cadence, you know, of, of development cycles because, you know, every few years there'll be a new, um, you know, APIC class designation or a CAE that we're all kind of working towards. And, you know, the advent of this kind of new technology platform really kind of throws a spanner in the works and and now we're not following the, the standard development cycles. So is this development cycle any different and and how is it because let's say for example you know from my perspective I, I look at development of most of the internal combustion fluids and you go well you're largely working with the sort of like the same folks right <laughs> yeah everyone knows who's who in the zoo it's mostly the same manufacturers year in year out haven't really been any breakout manufacturers for a long time ev space um, is kind of dominated by a lot of a lot of startups, then you've got, you know, the incumbents that are trying to get into the game. I know in China, you can basically throw a wrench and hit an EV manufacturer pretty much wherever you go. So how, how is that kind of playing into the dynamics of, of the, the development of new products? Yeah. Um, so there's a few things that are uh, a little bit different than, than the question there. So, um, within driveline development and development of transmission fluids, it's been, um, always outside of those, um, industry groups that create things. Um, I mean, years ago, um, us car tried to come together to create, um, a transmission specification and never quite managed to do it, um, for their automated transmissions. And that's even just with the, the three big auto makers in the US, they couldn't agree on the friction requirements and so on mm-hmm. and, and decided they'd rather have their own specs. And that's been really the landscape for uh, at least passenger car transmissions um, for, you know, uh, 
working career sort of timelines. Um, and so it's always been the case that it's about, um, working together between the oil company, the OEM, the asset company that provides the technology and, and, you know, how that relationship plays out. Um, so in a sense that there's nothing new there, that that's the kind of model. So rather than it being a big industry consortium, it's about individuals working together to get the right solution for it. Um, and that's where a lot of the, uh, for each OEM, usually the fluid is different. Um, there are a few that take standard fluids, but a lot of the time it's, it's different per OEM or different tra per transmission. Um, the difference here, however, is that everybody is developing all at the same time and with in a short time scale. So rather than say you had five years, maybe you'd have a couple of years to relax, then you'd get going again, take another five years to do something. Now it's one development overlaps the next one. Um, you know, each generation is, is not just, you know, next to each other, they're, they're converging with each other. Um, and everybody's doing that. Um, so that means there's a much greater challenge in the industry to do that and amongst roughly the same players. So the number of additive companies and the number of oil companies hasn't dramatically changed that's sort of factory fill. Um, so there's a lot more to do and more complexity as a result from that. Um, then there's the point as well about all those new entrants. Um, I think for China, that was certainly something which was a bit daunting to start with. Um, and the Chinese government had encouraged an enormous number of, of uh, EV startups. Um, a couple of years ago, they changed the legislation and took incentive away from that. And as a result, um, a lot of the, um, the speculative funding for that collapsed um, and left a relatively small number. Now, it's still more than existed before, but it's, it's a smaller number. Um, and so I think in terms of the, the number of car makers in China, that's consolidating a little bit or becoming clearer who's going to win there. Um, and the number of truly new makers, you know, the likes of Neo or Xpeng, um, is, is relatively few. Mm. Um, now, of course, someone like Tesla has made a big impact and, and they didn't exist a, a number of years ago and, and others. Um, there's also the tier one landscape as well. Um, now that helps in some ways to reduce complexity that for those smaller startups, they might go to a, a tier one, um, manufacturer of, uh, of a transmission system. So they consolidate that a little bit. Um, but then you've got all the tier ones to serve as well as the, you know, the OEM mark names. So yeah, a lot of complexity there, um, to deal with. Um, but it is about those one-on-one -on -one relationships really. Yeah. That sounds, uh, complex for someone who needs help with this shift. <laughs> uh, but which, uh, makes me more appreciative that you've given me, uh, an hour of your time, because I'm sure you, you can't really spare it. Um, so maybe as we, as we sort of start to wrap up a little bit here, um, one thing that I'm finding interesting is that a lot of the, uh, different lubricants manufacturers have started to kind of stake out their claim to, uh, to this particular space. Um, uh, specifically everyone's kind of gotten on gear, uh, gotten on hold with the, the, the branding side of things. Right. Um, I made a comment about a year ago that, uh, the brand names have not set the world on fire in terms of originality. They're, they're all kind of variations on mobile EV, shell EV, whatever. Um, uh, but, but how does that sort of play out in the future? Because I think everyone's expectation is that, you know, the volumes are going to 
substantially reduce, right? When we go from a shift from internal combustion to, to electric vehicles, I mean, the whole, one of the big advantages of the EVs is the, um, you know, the serviceability of them or, or the lack of servicing that's required. Um, so it just strikes me as interesting that there's kind of that, uh, let's say commercial branding, sorry, uh, consumer branding for what is on the face of it going to be more of a B2B sort of sale? How, how do you see the market falling out? Yeah. So uh, I think you put your finger on something quite interesting there. Um, I mean, firstly, I don't see the, the, the industry disappearing overnight. Um, yeah. the, the time it will take to churn through, um, the size of the, the fleet that's out there at the moment, the growth in vehicle sales across the world, um, including in parts of the world that aren't adopting EVs as quickly, um, means that the size of the lubricant industry will remain uh, flattened in terms of the growth um, compared to those number of vehicles, but um, will remain strong, uh, our forecast say, until 2040 and beyond. So, um, you know, from that point of view, um, it, the wage in which people go to market today are still going to be important. Um, I think this branding exercise from uh, those major uh, oil companies is something a little bit different. Um, and I think the key point you made there was that it's um, OEM style, sorry, consumer style branding for an OEM audience, which has never been really done before. It's a bit weird. Um, you know, and, and these relationships that I described before are kind of one-on-one. -on -one, so why would you need that consumer style branding uh, for that kind of business model? Um, and there's lots of people doing it, like say, um, yeah, X, Exxon Mobil EV, um, yeah, Total EV, Shell EV, like I said, not exactly so original. Fuchs Blue EV goes a little bit further. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or uh, Petronas Iona, they, they, yeah, so they've got something at least a little bit more original. But, um, I mean, all, each of those examples is definitely, uh, OEM focused. Um, and I think, I mean, you may have connections with somebody you could, you could ask them this question directly, but my take on that or my, uh, summation of it is it's to deal with that complexity. It's to get them out there and to be seen, um, with all of those different, um, OEMs, all those different tier ones and, um, startups, um, where there's just so much happening that the branding is doing some work for them, um, and to direct towards what their offering is. In addition, you've got new people coming into the industry. Um, so electrical engineers starting to do, um, oily stuff. Um, and so they might not have those established relationships. And so again, there's a, there's a way in which they can connect with those people where maybe they don't know who they are, um, or those relationships aren't established. So that, that's my, well, the assumption, but I, I, that's what I think is going on with it. There are others, um, who are starting to run for consumers and workshops, and that's a little bit different. So if you take what Valvoline have done, for example, um, where they've started to um, add some, uh, branding for electric and hybrid vehicles. I think for the aftermarket, it's going to be more about hybrid vehicles, at, at least in the short term and having a, a product range, which is at least ready, perhaps optimized and, and, and customized for that. Yeah, that's, uh, that is interesting because like you said, I, I think the, the oil companies, I think you're going to have to adapt a little bit to, uh, your environment where Basically that it's almost like that omni-channel kind of mentality where they've got to sell in every direction. You know, they've got to sell to OEM, they've got to sell to a new market, they've got to sell to the existing market, they've got to sell to the, to the, uh, to the aftermarket as well. 
And uh, that's going to introduce a fair bit of complexity, um, especially as there are fewer fewer people in in our industry uh, to be able to to handle that load. And that's something we talked about on the, this podcast quite a lot. Um, well, Adam, uh, I think that's a really good place to end it to uh, to talk a little bit about you know what what does the future look like? Um, obviously, this is a a space that's kind of evolving pretty fast. So I'll have to get you back on in a little while to talk about some of the new developments and maybe we can do a little bit of a deep dive into uh, commercial because uh, the the range of platforms that is out there, like you said, is, is kind of a little bit more variable than that, the passenger vehicle space. So, hey, I really, really appreciate the time today. Uh, I know you're a busy man and uh, yeah, we'll have to catch up soon. Pleasure, Ray. Thanks very much.